Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to another week of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am so glad that you are here. And I hope that there are a lot of new listeners after Joe Rogan got released this week. What a cool thing. So stoked, so grateful to have been able to hang out with Joe. If you missed the Joe Rogan Experience episode, it is number 1551. Hopefully when this podcast is released, it will be everywhere. Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify. But Joe and I sat down for three solid hours and talked about all kinds of cool things. We talked about the remembering at the end of the podcast, which was probably my favorite part of the podcast, and we really got into some spiritual stuff that was pretty close to my heart, connections with nature, and the whole podcast was about remembering how we are supposed to eat as humans. Of course, this spurs a lot of controversy from all of the bitter people out there who don't believe in what I'm saying, but I've been debating them for years, so it's nothing new, and I look forward to future productive conversations with them to advance the ideas and help you all understand how to live optimally. Now, as you all know, a huge part of how we're supposed to eat is nose to tail. Getting organs in your diet is important. Let me rephrase that. It's essential. Uh, I eat liver every day. I eat heart every day. I eat as many organs as I can frequently. And one of the reasons that I built Heart and Soil at heartandsoil.co, I talk about this on the podcast, is that I wanted you all to have more access to nose-to-tail nutrition in a convenient way. It's hard to get fresh organs. You can't travel with them. They spoil quickly. A lot of places you can't get things like spleen or pancreas or liver or kidney, which are all uniquely valuable. And so we built Heart and Soil, and it's been a fun ride. Now, clearly, since the release of Joe Rogan, we've had lots of interest. We're Um, out of a couple things, but if you go to the website, heartandsoil.co, you'll find that we've got alternate product recommendations. So if you're looking for beef organs, consider blood builder or bone marrow and liver, or excuse me, blood builder or histamine and immune, both of which have a lot of the same organs of beef organs and also bone marrow and liver. There's a lot of liver in both blood builder and histamine and immune. Fire starters there in good supply. And believe me, we are working as hard as we can to get beef organs, bone marrow and liver, and gut and digestion back in stock. And we've got new products coming in the next few weeks. We've got a colostrum and a liver and heart product. I like to keep the name secret till we release them. Um, coming in the next few weeks. So that is super, super exciting. You can check us out there. You can find show notes for the Joe Rogan episode at heartandsoil.co.co front slash Rogan, or they're all over the front page. You can't miss them. Tons of resources about all the things I talked about. As if the podcast and all the videos I do are not enough, but if you have questions about anything I talked about on Rogan, it's all there on the website. You can always email me, drpaulheartandsoil.co, if you have questions about product recommendations, combining products, specific organs, nose to tail eating, or dietary recommendations, I look forward to hearing from you. Check us out, heartandsoil.co. We are helping you reclaim your ancestral birthright to radical health. That is the remembering, you guys. So one of the other things that was probably the most controversial part of the podcast with Rogan was my lipids. This isn't new. I've talked about it before. I've done many podcasts on it. I showed you guys my coronary artery calcium score of zero. Yeah, my LDL is, quote, high, but 
this challenges the notion, this challenges the paradigm, and I'm so happy to be at the forefront of challenging this paradigm. I am one of these people who, when they eat an ancestral diet of meat and organs and some honey, I don't even eat a ton of fat anymore, my LDL goes really high, really high. Now, is that a problem? I don't believe it is because context is everything, but it scares the shit out of so many people. Well, I thought this would be a fun time to release a podcast I did with my buddy, Nadir Ali. This is the second podcast with Nadir. Uh, There are two of them. Both of them are on the heartandsoil.co website. You can find all my podcasts there. Who's Nadir Ali? He's an interventional cardiologist. He's an MD with over 25 years of experience. He's the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Clear Lake Regional Medical Center in Houston. And he was an assistant professor of medicine for eight years at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he received his medical training. He's legit. He is a dyed-in-the-wool cardiologist, right? What does a dyed-in-the-wool cardiologist think of my cholesterol and my results? Listen to the podcast to find out. Spoiler alert, he's not worried either, and nor should you be if you are metabolically healthy. This is what I've been saying all along. Metabolic health is everything. There's going to be a lot of fun debates coming up with mainstream cardiologists who disagree with me on this, and I will assure you, I will school them because they are not thinking about this from a contextual perspective. They are thinking about it in monovariable perspectives, monovariate analyses. Listen to the podcast with Dave Feldman. If you have questions about lipids, you can listen to this one. You can listen to the three previous ones I've done with Dave Feldman. You can listen to the podcast with Malcolm Kendrick. You can listen to the podcast with Ivor Cummins. And you can listen to the podcast with Jack Wolfson, another cardiologist. There are many who question the lipid hypothesis. Elevated LDL, quote unquote, is beneficial, I believe, if you are metabolically healthy. This is normal human physiology. It's going to break the system when we prove this to be correct. Enjoy this podcast with Nadir Ali and check out my sponsors. So I want to say thank you to Belcampo. You guys know Belcampo. We talked a lot about regenerative agriculture on the Joe Rogan experience. They are a regenerative farm doing rotational grazing, grass feeding, grass finishing of their cattle. They have organs. It's belcampo.com. They are giving a 20% off discount to listeners of this podcast basically through the end of this year because they're sponsoring my podcast for the rest of this year. This is organic, grass-fed, grass-finished, or grass-fed, grass-finished meat. It's some of the best meat you can find on the planet, and you can get stew meat or whatever you want there affordably with this incredible discount. They're so generous. They've got a couple of other discounts coming up too in the future, so check them out. Bellcampo.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD. They have suet. They have liver. They have heart. Um, They're going to get more organs in. They have carnivore bundles and keto bundles, and I love what they're doing. I've had Anya Fernald on the podcast. Check out the previous episodes at heartandsoil.co podcasts to listen to my whole conversation with Anya Fernald. If you want to hear about how the chief cowgirl, well, she's really the CEO, but I call her the chief cowgirl at Belcampo, does her stuff. So this is the way that we move the conversation forward. Animals do not harm the planet. They are an integral part of regenerative systems in this world, regenerative ecosystems for agriculture. There's so much misinformation out there. It is insane. It is insane. We're just going to keep teaching them, you guys. Another farm that is doing this, you guys know I love White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Man, I love these guys. They're amazing people, amazing men and women. You can check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order. They have everything, if you can get it. They have all the organs, suet, 
grass-fed meat, lamb, turkey, guinea, chicken, pork. And the chicken they're doing there is corn and soy-free. So look for the corn and soy-free chicken they're doing at White Oak Pastures. They did that because I asked them to. (laughs) They did that because they're amazing. And if you guys want them to continue to offer corn and soy-free chicken breast and meat, let them know you like it and support them and you'll notice it tastes differently. It's amazing stuff. They're doing really good work. Those are the best chickens I've ever had in my life. I prefer red meat, but those are good chickens, you guys. It's amazing stuff. You will appreciate it. Give them a call. Tell them how much you appreciate them. I love White Oak Pastures dearly. I went there for a recent photo shoot. Mentioned them a bunch of times on Joe Rogan because they are beautiful freaking people. Go to Bluffton. Give Will Harris a hug. Give Jenny Harris a hug. Maybe I'll even see you there at some point. Last sponsor this week is my friends at NutriSense. I love these guys. You guys know the folks at NutriSense. They are doing CGMs, all kinds of good stuff there. Continuous glucose monitors. Check them out. I so appreciate the work, the way that a continuous glucose monitor could change your appreciation of the way your blood sugar responds. And I'll give a shout out to my friends at forceofnaturemeats.com, forceofnature.com, another regenerative company doing all kinds of good work. They have bison blend. They have amazing things. You can get bison organs. I'm going to be going out to Rome Ranch soon, hopefully with Joe, as you heard on the podcast. But I love all those places. Check out Force of Nature, all that stuff. And check us out at Hard and Soil for your organ needs. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. These iTunes reviews, Apple Podcasts is what it's called now, really help me move the needle because it helps us reach so, so many more people. And that is amazing. Reaching people is what we're about. And that's what we want to do. So reach more people. Leave me a review on iTunes every month. I'll be giving away some signed copies of my book to people who leave me a review. So if you go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review. Say, I like Paul. I don't like Paul. Preferably you'll like me. (laughs) I work hard. If you don't like me, that's fine too. But leave me a review on iTunes and I'll get you a signed copy of the book if you're lucky. Thanks for your support, guys. On to the podcast. Listen after for what is going on with me. Here we go. Nadira Ali, thank you for coming back on the podcast, my friend. Hey, uh, I am awesome and excited. And as you as you saw, my you pointed out my mountain bike. I've been coming to work for about seven months. Didn't even miss a day, even during Hurricane Laura. I came <laughs> on my bike. If you guys are watching this, yeah, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, it's also a Saturday that you're at work, incidentally, that we're recording this. But if you guys are watching this on YouTube, you'll see Nadir's converted mountain bike into a gravel bike. It's a pretty cool bike. It's got it's a, it's got a front shock and drop bars and suspension. It's got to be a super fast gravel bike. I thought, what is that? There's like this uh, this hybrid type animal bike back behind you. So I love it. So you are a cardiologist. Now we did a podcast many moons ago, almost over a year ago at last year's Paleo FX in Austin. Unfortunately, Paleo FX didn't happen this year, but I love watching your stuff. And it's so interesting to talk to mainstream interventional cardiologists who don't necessarily buy into the LDL paradigm. And so I thought if people are interested, they should go back and listen to that podcast, but let's bring them up to speed. Just give us a basic snippet about your background and what you do now. I have modulated a lot. Um, I am a full-fledged interventional cardiologist. I still go into the cath lab. I still look at people coming in with a heart attack. I open up their blood vessels with a stent. Um, But I'm backing off more and more over the last seven years 
as my practice and my clinical experience in treating patients with low carb, with animal sourced food diet, with uh, intermittent fasting, basically lifestyle changes. And I have found that the power of lifestyle changes, basically nutrition, fasting, exercise, the magnitude is so strong and, and so significant that it is a lot more powerful than many of the interventions I do in the cath lab. Not necessarily somebody coming with a heart attack, but in patients with chronic heart disease, with blockages, with high blood pressure, with obesity, with metabolic syndrome, with diabetes, with hypertension, with gout, you name it. And all of these things are significantly improved with nutrition and lifestyle changes when you know what to do and when you know how to counsel people properly. And you're not just going by this traditional mainstream medicine advice, eat low fat, uh, eat a, a carb heavy diet, exercise, that has not worked for 60 years. We should abandon it and move on and do something that is working. And that's where you come in, Paul. <laughs> well, you and I both. And what's so interesting is you said animal-based, you said low-carb. You know, Nadir, mainstream cardiology thinks that plant-based is the way to do this. Mainstream cardiology thinks that, that red meat and organs are causing heart disease. When did you realize that that might not be the case? I mean, you're definitely different than the mainstream. I think most cardiologists think that plants are the answer. And it sounds like you are an advocate for animal foods. Um, yes, I am definitely an advocate for animal sourced food, especially for humans. Um, I put out a very nice YouTube video about animal sourced food and it links in the expensive tissue hypothesis. It takes in through our gut biology. It, it, it shows how humans digestive system and how our brain and our biology is more or less adapted to high quality nutrient dense and calorie dense nutrition. So, you know, it's, it takes a lot to unpack that. Um, because I, one I said is that it's animal source predominantly. Number two, I said it's nutrient dense. Number three, I said it is high quality. And number four, I said it is also calorie dense. So all of these things are in a way that are intertwined with how our stomach is, which is basically an acid digestion, how we have a very large absorptive surface, which is the small intestines, how we are incapable of processing vegetable matter, Oh, there you are. You are kind of optimal diet for humans. These are the videos, right? That is, that is the video. Okay. We'll and, link to it in the show notes. Uh, it has been watched many times. I see. And if you watch that, you would say, hey, human biology is designed for us to eat a predominantly animal sourced food. I'll let you expand on that, Paul, because I know that you have done such a good job in uh, educating us about this. 
and I don't want to go too far into that because there are so many new aspects that we have learned that you may want to touch on. Yeah, but I just showed that if people are watching on the YouTube video, they will have seen me link to um, Nadir's uh, YouTube channel, which is Eat Mostly Fats. And there are two videos there, The Optimal Diet for Humans, part one and part two. Part one is insulin resistance. Part two is stomach acid. And they both have about 40,000 views. So we'll put those in the show, mo- show notes. I recommend all of Nadir's videos on YouTube, you guys. He does a great job with these. And these are actually really interesting to me because I think that you and I share ideas about this, about the expensive tissue hypothesis. These are things that I spoke about in my book as well, and these ideas around stomach acid. So many of my listeners will will know about these ideas. And I agree with you completely. I think there's very good evidence looking at the human biology, at the pH of our stomach, at the way that we digest meat, and at our anthropology and our evolution, that these foods have been at the center of our of our really our history for many, many years. And what's so crazy to me is that if you ask most cardiologists, they will tell you that red meat is killing us. Why did why does so many cardiologists think red meat is killing us, Nadir? You know, it's like this, Paul. If you start out on the wrong ladder right from the beginning, and then you keep climbing that ladder over and over and, and go higher and higher, you think you're making progress but you started out on the wrong ladder. (laughs) And the wrong ladder for them was to link fat and cholesterol as culprits in vascular disease. They could not have been more wrong. So when you start with the the premise that fat and cholesterol are culprits in human vascular disease, and you don't change that paradigm, and you keep looking to justify your original hypothesis, you're gonna keep going further and further in the wrong path. Seems like they're making progress, but they are not. And you can identify that they are not making progress. The reason, the way you can do that is that in the last 50 years, have Americans lived healthier? No. Are they more obese? No. Are there more diabetics? Yes. Is heart disease more prevalent now than before? Yes. Every aspect of human health has gone down, even to the point that we as Americans, the next generation of Americans are gonna live a shorter lifespan than us. It has never happened in the history of this country. Every generation subsequent has lived longer than the previous generation. And this is a direct result of mainstream medicine, of USDA, of all the major organizations failing to look into human nutrition and guiding us on the wrong path, telling us to eat plant-based nutrition that we, that our biology is not suitable for. Just like you have mentioned, it's not suitable for. Red meat is an important source of so many good aspects for us. Uh, it's important for iron, it's important for the quality of protein because it's a complete protein. It has fat in it, which our body needs, uh, fat, is needed to feed our brain. Our brain is an expensive tissue that needs to be fed. Uh, Like you said, if we had not eaten animal food, 
our brain would not be 1500 grams. Our closest ape ancestor has a brain that is about roughly in the mid 200 grams. We only got a 1500 gram brain because we ate high quality nutrition. That's our basic evolution. And you're trying to deny that. If we were capable of eating plants, we would have had a huge colon or we would have been like ruminants because we would have processed the fiber that is present in grass into fat like the ruminants do because they can eat grass, which is fiber. And the ruminants process that fiber in their foregut through the bacteria. The bacteria convert the fiber to fat and that's how they get fat eating grass. The post-processing, in other words, after acid digestion in the colon, where there is processing of fiber that happens in certain groups of animals like horses, we are not there because our colon size is much smaller. So our colon is not capable of processing all the plant food that we have been asked to eat. We need calories. We need minerals. We need vitamins. We need <clears throat> essential fatty acids. We need specific amino acids like taurine. We need vitamin B12. Do you have a guess, Paul, where all of this nutrition <laughs> is? Is it in plants or, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm asking you that question because I, I want you to state the obvious. <laughs> it's in animals, we know it is. None of those things occur in plants at all. It's crazy. And I don't know, you know, I think that we need to get some plant-based cardiologists into the conversation and ask them these questions as well. The problem is that plant-based cardiologists won't talk to us because they don't wanna have the debates. So we'll see. But I think it's very obvious when you think about these things that, that humans are meant to eat these foods. Now, the, the effects of eating these foods is often a raising of our low-density lipoprotein, a raising of our serum lipoproteins. Did you see my recent LDL? I posted about it on social media. You, I don't know if you follow what I was doing. Did you see how high it was? I didn't, Paul, but I would love to know what it was. Tell me. 533 milligrams per deciliter. Wow, you must be incredibly following a low-carb diet, almost all animal-sourced food. You must be physically very active. And you look it. I mean, you look like a specimen of health. And if you ever went to a cardiologist, please don't show them that LDL because they'll say, hey, you're going, Paul, you're going to die before you leave my office. Your LDL is so damn high that it's going to kill you. And you are just basically have several patients who are just like you, who are running LDLs in the mid 200s, in the mid 300s, some in the mid 400s. And they have a calcium score of zero. And my calcium score is zero. So my father had a heart attack when he was 43 years old. I'm 43 now. And so I have a history of early coronary disease and a primary relative and I just got a coronary artery calcium scan two weeks ago because I got that result and said, aha, I'm gonna get a CAC. Now, here's a question for you. If you asked many of your radiology colleagues or if you go down to um, you know, the radiology department at the hospital or the university you work at 
and you say, I would love for you to present my case to like one of the radiologists down there and don't tell them anything about me and say, hey, I have this patient. He's a 43-year-old man. He has a father who had a heart attack at the age of 43. He's had an LDL above 300 for two and a half years. What do you think his CAC is going to look like? What are the chances his CAC is going to be positive? What are the chances his CAC is going to be zero? And what does zero CAC scan, coronary artery calcium scan, in someone like that mean? Because I've, I've widely said, hey, I have an LDL of 533 with an LDL particle number of greater than 3,500 nanomole per liter. Incidentally, the particle size is greater than 24.7 nanometers. It's a really big particle. And, um, and you know, I've said, look, I'm just saying this is my N of one. It's only been two years, but most cardiac radiologists that I've talked to or most people who read these scans would say, with your family history, you should have plaque in your arteries. You should have calcified plaque. Of course, the, the critics are saying he's only done it for two years. It's N equals one. And you and I both know that's not, you know, we'll see. I'm going to keep getting CACs and they're going to keep being negative and the deniers are going to have to keep denying that this is a valid metric. But what do you think the people at your university or your clinic would say if you gave them my data? You're absolutely right. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, what you have said is that very high calcium, very high cholesterol and LDL numbers, but a zero calcium score. So we just have to be a little careful out there in that space because a zero calcium score can sometimes happen in people before age 45 when they have soft plaques. Right. The plaques don't have enough time to calcify. However, when you look at somebody like you, you have many other metrics that are indicating that you really don't have plaque buildup. You don't have fatty liver. You don't have metabolic syndrome. Your insulin levels are very low. You're insulin sensitive. Your inflammation markers are low. And your cholesterol quality, which is your HDL levels and your triglyceride levels are low. In addition, we are looking at you from a standpoint of how do you feel? You feel great. On the other hand, let's say you take a person of my Indian background, and let's say that they are 43 years of age, and they come in, get a calcium score done, and their calcium score is zero, and then a few months later or a few days later, they end up having a heart attack. Right. That's possible. It's possible. The reason it's possible is because these people have soft plaques, but if you look a little further into them, you will find that they have fatty liver, that they are insulin resistant, that they have high triglycerides, low HDL. Their LDL, by the way, may not be very high. Actually, it may be on the low side. They would have high inflammation markers. They have impaired glucose tolerance. So the context is important in here, and you wanna make sure that you're presenting the information, unfortunately, if you look at a garden variety cardiologist, and when I say a garden variety cardiologist, I'm talking about 95% of my colleagues. They would have absolutely no idea about somebody, in the, somebody like you, a lean mass hyperresponder. They would only be able to focus on the LDL. They cannot see the quality of your cholesterol from a standpoint of low triglycerides, high HDL. They cannot see the large fluffy particles that you have. You said in angstroms, it is 224.7. 240, 247. 
that is astronomically high. Now, you also said your particle count is uh, very high, 3,500 plus. So another thing that people need to recognize is that as your LDL goes up, the particle number goes up concordantly. And when the particle number goes up, your small dense particles will also be a little high, but overall size of your LDL molecule would be very large, just like you talked about your mean LDL size. And I think you may be trying to pull out some slides to show that. But that is besides the point. If you asked a cardiologist, do you know what defines insulin resistance? They would not be able to tell you. If you ask them, hey, do you know what a HOMA IR is? <laughs> they would not know that. There is new things that we are learning as low-carb practitioners. We are now talking about how insulin and glucagon interact together. That insulin resistance is not a single hormonal disorder, but it's a bihormonal disorder between insulin and glucagon. So there are all these aspects that they are incapable of analyzing in somebody like you and their fail-safe method is, Paul, you're going to die before you leave my office, or very shortly thereafter, let us put you on a high dose of a statin, and maybe we should add one of those new injectables, the PCSK9 inhibitors. I want to talk about those today, too. Let's Absolutely. put in some Repatha, Avalokumab. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do it, because my LDL is so high, I think they would, they would not let me leave the office until I had a high-dose statin and high-dose Repatha, some PCSK9 inhibitors. I would refuse. I would run out through the window. So I'll just share my data. I'm going to do a whole podcast on my blood work, you guys, but this is my information. Uh, hopefully there's nothing there that's critical. <laughs> um, you can see my testosterone, my sex hormone binding globulin, my albumin. Uh, here is my LDL cholesterol, 533. Uh, my HDL is 90. My LDL particle number is greater than 3,283 nanomol per liter. My LDL size is 24.7 nanometers, which is 247 angstroms. And if you go down here, my fasting insulin is less than three micro IU per ml. And if you are interested, my C-peptide is 0.43 nanograms per uh, liter. The insulin resistance score cannot even be calculated. It's so low. <laughs> They can't even calculate my insulin resistance score. So you can see my fasting glucose is 87, but it's, those are my blood work. And I think that when I got that, I thought, isn't that interesting? You said lean mass hyperresponder. If people are interested, this is probably the seventh podcast I've done on lipids and lipoproteins. I find this to be fascinating. Go back into my catalog and listen to the previous podcast with Dr. Nadir Ali. Listen to the podcast with Malcolm Kendrick. I've done two podcasts with Dave Feldman, and I've done a podcast with Jack Wolfson, who's another cardiologist. So if you guys have questions about this, there is a library. Lean mass hyperresponder is kind of a Dave Feldman term. It's similar people to me who tend to be lean. We tend to be athletic. We tend to eat relatively low carb, although I'll tell you that I do include carbs in my diet now, and we can talk about that as well. Um, and they have very high LDL. But here's the question that I think I just want to hear you answer. Does LDL cause atherosclerosis? Uh, if you ask me my opinion, I would say absolutely not. 
What do you think does? Unpack that for us a little bit. Let's talk about LDL a little bit. And, uh, you know, I put out a, a new YouTube video that talks about is oxidized LDL an injured firefighter or an arsonist? Now, that's a very important aspect to look at. So in the biology of LDL, as the LDL goes up, the liver picks up the LDL through a receptor called LDLR because the liver doesn't want to go through the process of making its own cholesterol when there is enough cholesterol around. But let us say that the LDL in the process of working through inflammation, working through an area of injury, because that's what it is designed. If you look at LDL, it has a lot of antioxidants in it. It has got CoQ10 in it, it's got vitamin E in it, it has got beta carotene in it. And the job of the LDL is to protect the body from injury. Once the LDL is injured, the body deals with it very differently. So an injured LDL, there is immediate signals that the body gives out to down-regulate the LDLR receptor. So the receptor that's picking up the normal LDL goes down and the LOX receptor, LOX, these are receptors that are present in the macrophages. Now these macrophages are there just like an army is not going to leave behind its injured army men, the macrophages are going to go and pick up the oxidized LDL so that they are modulating and improving our response to injury. It's only when you don't have enough LDL. You get that, Paul? I'm saying when you don't have enough LDL, to reduce the damage from infections, from inflammation, that you're going to overwhelm the body's capacity to be able to deal with it. And only when there are a large number of oxidized LDL that the macrophage scavenger system, the LOX receptors are going to get overwhelmed and cause vascular disease. So what you should look out here for is to find out what is causing the inflammation? The LDL is there to protect us, not to cause injury by itself. It is a fireman. It's not an arsonist. If we can explain that in simple terms. And if you ever Google my name, Nadir Ali MD, because I have two channels. One is Eat Mostly Fats um, that my office runs, but I'm kind of a freelancer. I put out my own videos on my channel, which is Nadir Ali MD. And this uh, actually has had a number of views, probably about 10,000 views uh, about the oxidized LDL, whether it's an arsonist or an injured firefighter. I love it. I love it. And I think this is, I was trying to find your channel. I'll see if I can put it up. There's your channel. I see it right here. So um, I'll put this up on the screen for people. And I've improved the interface, uh, Paul. And now you see that I have learned how to use a green screen effect. I can use <laughs> the whole slide. So uh, you, you learn as you go. There it is. So here's the video. You guys can check this out. We'll link to it in the show notes. But 
I would agree with you completely here. Now, there are many people who disagree with us, and I think that there will probably be more more debates that happen in the future, um, if you guys listening would like to hear that. This is the first type of physiology that we were describing. LDL is moving around your body. Um, it has LDL receptors on the liver or other cells that pull in LDL. It gets recycled, and um, that is part of the normal process. Now, as Nadir was saying, sometimes when LDL gets oxidized, you get this oxidized LDL. Um, then it is taken up by this LOX1, this uh, oxidized LDL receptor, which primarily, um, this is looked like it's occurring on the endothelial cells, but it also can occur on macrophages. So we've got LOX1 receptors on endothelial cells and LOX1 receptors on macrophages. And remember here, when we're looking at this, guys, this is the bloodstream. Here's a regular LDL. Here's an oxidized LDL, and we'll explain the difference there. Here's the, the single cell layer, the endothelium, that separates the blood from the subintimal space. And you can see this is vascular smooth muscle cells in the subintimal space. These are supposed to be smooth muscle cells depicted here. So what we have here is oxidized LDL getting taken up and moving into the subendothelial space. What's interesting is that in this diagram, at least, they're not showing LDL moving into the subendothelial space, just oxidized LDL. And much of this is very hotly debated. But I think that this is a very compelling hypothesis that bears a lot of consideration that there's a big difference between a low-density lipoprotein and a low-density lipoprotein that has been damaged. And maybe I can find a picture real quickly of LDL to show you guys, but the LDL molecule is a, I believe it's a monolayer um, it's a lipid monolayer with an ApoB100 in the, in the membrane. And also in the membrane are things like, of course, CoQ10, et cetera. And this is a particle. It's a particle that moves cholesterol and, um, and triglycerides around our body. It is a bus. It serves an immunologic role, which we will probably talk about. So this is a picture of LDL. You can see there is a lipid monolayer here. It's a ball. There's a large particle here called ApoB. This is a protein that identifies LDL. Now, what they're depicting in this picture is pro-inflammatory oxidized phospholipids, these red things. Again, this is just a cartoon, but this is very interesting to think about this. Here's another picture of LDL with an ApoB protein and a core. This is a phospholipid monolayer and a core that is full of, um, it's not full of jelly like a jelly bean or like a Reese's peanut butter cup. It's full of cholesterol, ester, and triglycerides. LDL moves these things around the body. Here's another depiction of LDL with an ApoB on the surface. So isn't this interesting that we're beginning to think about some nuance between LDL and oxidized LDL? Now, there's a really interesting article. Have you seen this one? So check this one out. Have you seen this article? Changes in dietary fat intake alter plasma levels of oxidized low-density lipoprotein and LP little a. Oh, I, I need to, uh, you're still muted. Yes, uh, I have looked at that article, Paul. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting and intriguing. Go ahead, give, give us a little uh, idea about it since it looks like it's fresh in your memory. <laughs> so... I've mentioned this article before you guys, but basically what happened in this trial, this is an interventional trial, 37 women were fed two diets. And uh, one diet was low in vegetables, the other was high in vegetables. 
okay? And there was a diet that had a saturated fat intake decreased from 28 to 20 grams a day um, and a polyunsaturated fat that was increased from 11 to 13 and uh, to 19, excuse me. So they, they increased polyunsaturated fat from 11 to 13 grams to 19 grams. So they increased polys to about, by about 10 grams a day and they decreased saturated fat by only about 10 grams a day. And one group was high in vegetables and one group was low in vegetables. And lo and behold, at the end of the study, what they found was that LDL was lower in the group that got more polyunsaturated fat. Of course, this is not surprising, and we can talk about why, why you think polyunsaturated fats might lower LDL. But this is what's so interesting. This oxidized LDL molecule that we are talking about getting taken up by the LOX receptor went up in the vegetable oil group. And you can see that right here. It says the amount of oxidized LDL went up the median plasma, ox LDL, increased by 27% in response to the low-fat, low-vegetable diet. Um, and that was, the, um, that was the one with high polyunsaturated fats. And the LP little a concentration was increased by 7% as well. So oxidized LDL went up and LP little a went up when they took saturated fat down. This is one of the things that's so crazy because I think that, don't you think that, that saturated fat in animal foods get vilified because they raise LDL? I couldn't agree more. And uh, the data that you showed is very intriguing that uh, which I've been kind of, which all of us are trying to say is that eating a diet that we are not suitable for, seed oils, polyunsaturated fats is increasing the oxidized LDL. You're, you're damaging the LDL and the LDL is they're trying to protect you. It's not trying to cause any harm. It is, I can, I can share one little uh, slide here if you would like. Sure. Let me share my screen here. And um, I think if you can, uh, I think you see part of that, right? Yeah. So I'm showing an LDL molecule that is healthy. And the LDL molecule is designed with antioxidants inside it. And when it gets, when it's protecting the body from oxidative injury, it is losing, firstly, the vitamin E, the beta-carotene, the ubiquinol inside it. And only when these things are used up, does the outer layer of the LDL, which is the phospholipid layer, gets oxidized. So LDL is designed in our body to protect us from infections, from inflammations. It's a host defense mechanism. And... Um, you should not ignore that. And if I were to ask you, Paul, that, hey, in the last two and a half years, you've done an animal-sourced food diet, your LDL has been over 300. How many common colds did you have? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> How many times did you feel like you were down with an influenza or a flu? How quickly did you recover from an injury? Pretty quickly. I mean, How I felt pretty good, yeah. How do you feel after a bout of intense or long-term endurance exercise? I do mostly intense exercise, but I feel pretty good. So the, you are the definition of somebody with a high LDL who is in optimal health. And really, uh, we need to ask ourselves, the medical profession needs to ask, ask ourselves, why don't we look into this further? 
So um, you're doing great work, Paul. I'm glad that you are at the forefront and you're spreading the message. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad I'm a part of this journey. Oh, man, it's always good to, to talk about it. So check these papers out. This one is really cool. So this one is lowering dietary linoleic acid reduces bioactive oxidized linoleic acid metabolites in humans. So people know that I've been talking about linoleic acid a lot. And as Nadir and I are talking about here, and I'll, sh I'll show this on the next paper as well. I'll show that one real quickly. The when we eat more linoleic acid, it appears that there is a strong increase in hydroxy fatty acids derived from linoleic acid <clears throat> in human low-density lipoproteins of atherosclerotic patients. So I really just want to drive this point home for you guys. We'll put both of these papers in the show notes, and all the show notes are always at heartandsoilsupplements.com under the learn and podcast tab. But what we're talking about here is that you see that when you look at the lipid peroxidation index of patients with atherosclerosis compared to healthy controls. This is looking at two age groups, age 36 to 47, and people who are older, age 69 to 94. And in both age groups, there was a 20 to 30 and 100 fold increase in the products of oxidative, oxidation of linoleic acid in those with atherosclerosis. The hypothesis that we're generating here is similar to the first paper I showed. And that is exactly that the more our LDL gets enriched with linoleic acid, the more oxidized it becomes, the more susceptible to oxidation it becomes. So we don't need to worry about LDL. We should probably be thinking about oxidized LDL. And both of these papers are showing us that the more linoleic acid we eat, the more of these oxlams, the 9 and 13 HODES, the 4-HNE molecules accumulate in our LDL molecules, and that is much more increased in patients with atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. I think this is what's overlooked is that mainstream, quote, garden variety cardiologists who are well-intentioned and very intelligent are probably to blame for the epidemic of heart disease over the last 60 years. And that's a pretty sobering thought, considering that we have been told by the American Heart Association for that long to eat vegetable oil, which is rich in linoleic acid, right? I mean, do you ever think this, like, <clears throat> we're killing people? But I think that I would go a little further than that, Paul, because when they see a high oxidized LDL, like let's say you give a cardiologist a, a lab value that says, hey, this person's oxidized LDL is high. What do they reach out to? They reach out to statins. They reach out to PCSK9 inhibitors to drop the total LDL. But the primary question that you need to ask yourself is that, is the oxidized LDL a bad player? Is it there to protect us from oxidative injury? Right rather than letting the important cells get oxidized, is the LDL sacrificing itself in protecting the body and getting oxidized? So really then your whole paradigm changes that, hey, LDL is not a bad player, it's trying to protect us. What I need to figure out is that, how do I prevent this oxidative injury in the first place? And an argument that should surface is that, maybe I should have more LDL around so that oxidative injury can be helped and prevented rather than having less LDL. 
So yeah. these are these are the kind of fundamental questions that science should be asking. And fortunately, we are so much down the road of pharmaceuticals and profit that we are not going to be asking those questions. And I love you said that at the very beginning. If you're climbing the wrong ladder, you just keep climbing up further the wrong ladder. It's leading you to the wrong tree. They're barking up the wrong tree. They're going higher and higher in a tree that leads nowhere in a tree. Right. And they can pretend that they're progressing. They can get further and further and make more drugs and lower LDL more. But I love the way that you are turning this paradigm on its head. And this is something that I've suggested in the past as well. LDL is probably there to protect us. And I know Malcolm Kendrick kind of believes the same thing. LDL is probably a repository for oxidized phospholipids. And there are definitely people who believe that LP little a is a sacrificial lamb, is a repository mm -hmm. of oxidized phospholipids. In that first study I showed, when you introduce more polyunsaturated fats into your diet, LP little a goes up, oxidized okay. LDL goes up. So your LDL is probably protecting you. And this brings up another very interesting philosophical point, which is, is atherosclerosis always bad? Is atherosclerosis protective until it's not? Is atherosclerosis part of this protective process? Are these macrophages and the endothelium with these LOX receptors purposefully, you know, I think it's reasonable. They're supposed to be taking up this oxidized LDL. They're clearing it. And we're all going to get some oxidized LDL from time to time. It's when we overwhelm the system that we get more and more plaque buildup. And then eventually the body is just trying to repair, 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 and then they rupture. But, you know, one of the things that's very fascinating to me and the cholesterol the cholesterol zealots, the, the statnics, uh, will say that all, and this is true, a lot of animals do get atherosclerosis and in captivity or out of captivity. But I think that it, placental mammals get atherosclerosis. This is interesting. Atherosclerosis, this formation of small plaques or this subintimal LDL or these foam cells, maybe this is part of normal vessel repair. And the problem is that not that the atherosclerosis is happening occasionally, it's part of a normal healing process, like a scab. It's that in a lot of people, it just gets way out of control. And we're seeing LDL do its job normally. And it's just getting wrapped into a very bad equation where there's a big fire. It's a fireman. It didn't start the fire though, because this is the main question. And this is the question that you and I will be debating people about for the rest of our careers. Did LDL start the fire? It's not a question of whether LDL is involved. Clearly LDL appears to show up at the blaze. The question is, did it start the fire? I believe not, you believe not. And we're trying to show people, hey, LDL that rises in the setting of a low carb diet or an animal-based diet is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing. You've hinted at this before. And I think I first heard about this stuff from your presentations. Tell us a little bit about the role of LDL in the immune system. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, one of the things, Pearls, that you mentioned that I would like to elaborate on is that the body increases the amount of LDL in the setting of an infection. It is doing it on purpose. The liver starts elaborating uh, PCSK9 that comes in and removes the LDL receptor from the liver. So that the amount of LDL goes up in the circulation. And the reason for that is that that LDL is being ready to dampen an infection, to reduce inflammation. And if I can uh, show you um, another paper 
uh, on PCSK9 inhibitor, or actually another YouTube video that I have done on PCSK9 inhibitor, yeah. you will uh, see that, uh, uh, is it good to reduce LDL to such a big degree in the setting of this pandemic? And it is not, especially with the use of PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, because the LDL is designed, the body is making more PCSK9 so that it can increase the amount of LDL to do its job. So um, I'll just screen share this really quickly and then I'll let you do that just to show people how PCSK9 works. Most people have not heard of PCSK9. This is a plasma, this is a liver cell, this is the cell membrane, this is an LDL receptor, guys. We have this LDL particle that I showed in the plasma, in the blood circulation. It gets taken up by an LDL receptor and pulled into the liver. This is one of the ways the liver pulls LDL out of the circulation. But what Nadir is talking about is in the setting of infection, the liver is going to make more PCSK9. It's going to elaborate more PCSK9. And what PCSK9 does is it blocks that process. It blocks the process of LDL receptor endocytosis. So more LDL stays in the circulation. Now, PCSK9 inhibitors are these monoclonal antibodies, which we're going to talk about in this podcast. You will hear more and more about these. Repatha, there are other ones. Evolocumab is Repatha, and they block PCSK9. This is blocking our body's ability to do this. If you block PCSK9, more of these LDL receptors get pulled into the get pulled down. Uh, excuse me. That then the LDL receptor doesn't get recycled. Well, it's pulling more of the LDL out of the circulation. With that, is the idea right? Absolutely, Paul. And uh, if I can go to screen sharing on my side, I can show you um, uh, this uh, information here. There it is. Um, so what I, what this uh, describes is that. Just like Paul said, I'm going to pause that there. Uh, so should we reduce LDL? And this goes into a lot of detail about how there are populations of people, um, and I'll remove that and get back to the main screen, the population of people who have a genetically reduced amount of PCSK9 and these people, they remove a lot more LDL out of circulation. But if you look at this group, they have a higher incidence of visceral obesity. And we need to show why that is the case. They have fatty hearts, fatty liver, fatty pancreas, and a higher incidence of diabetes. So in other words, you're taking a group of genetic single nu nucleotide polymorphisms that have a lower LDL a higher PCSK9. They are obese, they have visceral obesity, their heart is fatty, their liver is fatty, their pancreas is fatty. Why is that the case? The reason that is the case is because PCSK9 is designed to remove the receptor from these organs that picks up LDL and VLDL. VLDL is the very low density lipoprotein that is triglyceride rich. So if you have a high amount of PCSK9, the heart is expressing a lot more of those VLDL receptors and it takes in the VLDL inside. 
So PCSK9 deficiency, reduction in PCSK9, higher amount of VLDL, greater your obesity, greater your visceral obesity, higher the risks of you becoming a diabetic. And if you look at some rat studies and some human data, these people are also at higher risks of infection. In other words, biologically, the PCSK9 is an acute phase reactant. What that means is that it goes up in the setting of infection and inflammation. The reason it's doing that is because it says, I need LDL to remain in circulation. I'm going to down-regulate the receptors in which I pick up the LDL and cholesterol so that more LDL remains in circulation. And at the same time, it is giving signals to the body to increase the LOX receptors, the receptors that are designed to take away the injured LDL. So in simplistic terms, don't mess with human biology that has been engineered over years and years, millions of years of evolution. And what we are trying to do with, with pharmaceutical agents is to mess it up without completely understanding the different homeostatic mechanisms that the body has. And we are messing it up. And we are not recognizing the negative results. The negative results come from clinical trials. If you take 28,000 patients and you treat 14,000 of these patients with a PCSK9 inhibitor, 14,000 is a lot of number. Low-carb doctors and low-carb practitioners talk about N of 1 and show the magnitude of results that you are showing. Grant you these are surrogate endpoints. But if you take 14,000 patients and you demonstrate a lack of mortality benefit, in other words, you give PCSK9, you don't reduce deaths. In fact, the deaths are a little higher. With, with Repatha, yeah, I'm going to show Repatha, that study. By giving PCSK9, mm -hmm. what would you say? This is a failed trial. Failed. Yes, and that giving this drug to people is wrong. But that doesn't stop us from trying to prescribe it. In fact, there are programs that are designed for doctors to use and increase the prescription of these drugs. Oh my God. So I want to talk about all this because this is a lot to unpack. So I want to talk about Fourier trial, which is something that you and I have talked about before and how badly it was done and, and why if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, you can see different outcomes for the Fourier trial. But first I want to talk about those genetic polymorphisms that people have with um, the PCSK9 um, problems. So this is an incredible article, Genetic Assessment of Potential Long-Term On-Target Side Effects of PCSK9 Inhibitors. And they're looking at people who, like Nadir is saying, have a single nucleotide polymorphism in the PCSK9 gene. And just so this is very clear to everyone, this is a little confusing. On the surface of the liver, there are LDL receptors. Those receptors pull out LDL out of the circulation into the liver. Now, PCSK9 is a molecule that is made by the liver. And when you make more PCSK9, you're gonna, um, you're gonna end up pulling more of that LDL out of the circulation. Actually, you're gonna leave more LDL in the circulation. If you make less PCSK9 or you inhibit PCSK9, you're gonna leave that LDL in the circulation. You're gonna pull more LDL out of the circulation. Sorry guys, I keep messing it up. So what Nadir is saying is that in the setting of infection, the liver makes more PCSK9. It's preventing LDL getting pulled into the liver. More LDL is in the circulation. But 
PCSK9 inhibitors. They're monoclonal antibodies. And I showed a picture of this a moment ago. I'll reshow it just to show you guys what's going on here on YouTube. They're this little monoclonal antibody, this red guy right here. And it's binding to PCSK9. It's preventing it. It's essentially the same thing that's happening in these people with this genetic defect in PCSK9. So what you're looking at here is a model system for what happens if we inhibit this evolutionary, evolutionarily elegant gene in this mutation. And what, as Nadir is saying, the PCSK9 T allele, which is associated with a, a lowered PCSK9, lowered PCSK9 means lower LDL and lower activity of PCSK9, was associated with a risk of type 2 diabetes, increased body mass index, waist circumference, waist to hip ratio, diastolic blood pressure, type 1 diabetes, and insulin reduce. And this is saying that people who have low PCSK9 genetically don't do well. <laughs> They have more LDL receptors on the surface. They pull more LDL into their organs and they're getting into a lot of problems. So this is an interesting thing to look at as a model system. Now, what's so crazy is that in, if you look at people who are advocates for PCSK9 inhibitors, they will point to a trial called the Fourier trial. And I'll show you guys the Fourier trial. And it's, it's, it's interesting because when you actually look at what's going on here, there are two different things. To, to look at. And this is quite, quite interesting. And it, it shows you how important it is to look at clinicaltrials.gov versus what is actually being reported. So evolocumab is the PCSK9 inhibitor that we've been talking about in this podcast. This is May 4th, 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine, as prestigious as it gets. And if you look at this, this is a monoclonal antibody. It binds PCSK9. It lowers LDL by leaving more LDL receptors on the surface, and it pulls more LDL in. It lowers LDL from the blood. But again, PCSK9 is part of a very important system in the body that we should not go messing with. Now, what they did is they did a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. This is exactly what Nadir is talking about of 27,564 people, of which about 14,000 got evolocumab or Repatha. And the follow-up they say here was 2.2 years. Now, what's interesting is in the conclusions, they say, aha, a trial evolocumab on a background of statin therapy, lowered LDL cholesterol to a median of 30 milligrams per deciliter. My LDL is 533 milligrams per deciliter. They lowered it to 30, okay? And they reduced the risk of cardiac events. They threw their hands up and they said, aha, we've done it. We're gonna be rich. I think, uh, is it Pfizer that makes Repatha? Who makes Repatha? Do you know? Oh, you're muted. Again. I think it's Amgen. I am Amgen, okay. Uh, yeah, so, but I don't think it's Pfizer. Pfizer makes uh, Lipitor. Okay. Uh, so different companies, but okay. they are all in cahoots. I know. But if you um, look at this, this is what's really cool. This is an article published on June 29th, 2020. Serious adverse events and deaths in PCSK9 inhibitor trials reported in clinicaltrials.gov, a systematic review. This paper is amazing. And what they found our meta-analysis of clinical trials did not show that PCSK9 inhibitors improve cardiovascular health. Evolocumab increased the risk of all-cause mortality. And why is it different? Because if you actually look at the Fourier trial, and they talk about this in the paper, you guys, if you look at the Fourier trial and you look on clinicaltrials.gov, they're only showing you the first 2.2 years. The trial actually went 3.4 years. And if you go out to the data at 3.4 years, which I'm going to show you here, I thought I had it highlighted. Um, if you go out to the data for 3.5 years or 3.4 years, what you will find is that 
it was a very different story, that it did not have any benefit for myocardial infarction or stroke, and it increased the risk of all-cause mortality. So here's the five-year review, and it's clinicaltrials.gov. It's not what got published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's the actual data. The posted data offers researchers an opportunity to analyze unpublished data as well as individual rather than composite clinical outcomes. In contrast to reviews based on published articles, our review did not show PCSK9 inhibitors decreased the risk of myocardial infarction and stroke, and it showed that Rapatha increased the risk of all-cause mortality. This is really scary, you guys, in addition to other things. Now, it's important to note that in this, this meta-analysis, it wasn't enough to really show that there were major um, uh, neurocognitive side effects or diabetic side effects in those trials, but the all-cause mortality was increased. Why are we giving these drugs to people? If you are listening to this and your LDL is high, chances are in the next five to 10 years, your cardiologist will recommend a drug like this to you. And these are killing people. And they really don't have a benefit. And they're doing, they're totally short-circuiting our normal system. I just thought that was so crazy to think, wow, if you look at the data published two months ago, it really counteracts Fourier, the Fourier trial. But when I talk about my results, the statin advocators and the LDL zealots on Twitter go crazy and they go, look at the Fourier data. It clearly shows LDL is causing atherosclerosis. And I think, wow, how can people not see this? Isn't this crazy, Nadir? I couldn't agree more. I, I, you know, you've clearly demonstrated out there that there is a discrepancy between what is published and what gets reported to the FDA. And I have shown that not just for the LDL trials, but for multiple other different things. Um, because what gets presented to, presented to the FDA is totally different than what gets published in the journal articles. Uh. So this is amazing, Paul, that you have uh, such a strong grasp about the LDL itself. But at some point, I think that we got to move on and say that, hey, look, LDL is not important. It is reflective of what is happening in our biology. If you are insulin sensitive, if you're eating the way we are designed to eat, you're gonna have a high LDL and that's good for you. And you mentioned in your, in your lab work that you showed that your insulin level is three, that your C-peptide level is low. And people would look at that and say, there is something wrong with that. But what they are failing to recognize is that insulin signaling in you, the way insulin works is much better. You need smaller amounts of insulin to pack the fat into the fat cells, the fat that you have eaten. You need smaller amounts of insulin to convert the amino acids, the protein that you have eaten to lean mass. So in other words, since insulin signaling is so much better, you need to make less insulin. And that is something that medical profession has not even gotten their hands around. They don't even grasp that well. Now, if I were to ask you that, hey, Paul, since you've gone into this animal-sourced food, do you feel weaker? Do you feel like you have <laughs> lost muscle mass? Do you feel stronger? What would you say? Stronger, if anything, yeah. I haven't lost so, muscle mass, that's for sure. Insulin is needed to build muscle. Insulin is needed for brain signaling. Insulin is not a bad player. Insulin is a good player. It is causing insulin resistance and messing insulin signaling that our modern diet 
is very nicely designed to do, what you're doing is ancestral diet. What you're doing is doing everything to make insulin work better. So you need less insulin for insulin signaling. And, and that's fantastic. So looking at your blood work is a corroboration from several standpoints. It's not just your cholesterol levels, but it's your insulin levels, your inflammation markers, your C-peptide levels, your clinical history that says, hey, I have become stronger. I have less infections. My mind works so sharp that in this podcast with Nadir Ali, I was able to pull out five papers out of the top of my head <laughs> while I was thinking multiple things and put that in perspective. Why is that the case? Because insulin is working on your brain and improving synaptic plasticity. Insulin signaling is good in the brain and that's happening in you. So I am amazed, Paul, and I think there are so many new aspects that we need to look into about low-carb diet because practitioners like you are pushing the envelope so that we understand human biology, human nutrition, the way in which we can optimize health more and more so that we can help a lot more people. And we are the ones who are going to be answering, asking these questions. And I think the grassroots efforts that you are starting is going to make its way up so that we're going to change nutritional guidelines. What do you think? I hope so. I think that it's going to be very hard to change them at a government level. But I think that that's what's so cool about podcasting. I mean, tens of thousands of people are going to hear this podcast and they're going to see it on social media and Twitter. And so I think we just educate enough people. They start asking their doctors the hard questions and they start, I think that as more and more doctors start appreciating this, I mean, I get emails at Heart and Soil all the time. Doctors are emailing me now, orthopedists, cardiologists, and they're saying, this is really cool. What are you talking about? I think this is what happens because if doctors can affect hundreds of patients in their practice and start to think differently like you have, think outside of the box, then we're starting a real revolution. And I think it's gonna start in medical schools at the training of doctors. That's really what I'm interested in is in the future, starting to train doctors and challenge the things that are being taught in medical schools. I mean, I wanna to go to like, you know, I wanna to go to, you know, the medical school in Houston and the medical school here in Austin and the medical school in every state and just be like, I wanna debate your cardiologists. Bring your articles, I'll bring my articles. We'll get some medical students out and they'll listen to what we're saying. I wanna have these debates. We should re-enliven those debates. I can imagine you know, a hundred years ago in medical school, as they're gathered around the ether dome at Harvard or wherever at Mass General, there are physicians debating and they're saying, well, we think this and we think this and that's how the medical students are learning. And in 2020, it's just, here's the information, you digest it, you regurgitate it. There's no thinking. I think we need to bring back this debate sort of format, this friendly debate format within medical schools and say, hey, there's this information that's going to challenge the paradigm. And of course, the medical students would lose their mind because they would say, I don't know what to do. They wouldn't know how to practice. But I think you have to get them thinking and really challenge them in a way. That's how we move the needle. And it's starting with people. And I think it starts with doctors as well. Um, do you have to run right now? I can let you go or do you have a couple more minutes? We can do a couple more minutes, but I got to run, but we got to promise that we're going to have another podcast in which we are going to discuss things that we were not able to cover that are at the heart and soul of what I'm trying to do next, which is to understand insulin and glucagon parachronology, because insulin producing beta cells and glucagon producing alpha cells 
are in close juxtaposition to each other. They are right next to each other. An endocrine effect is a hormone produced here, but having an effect at a distant level. A paracrine effect is an effect that is right next to it, adjacent to it. And the juxtapositioning of insulin and glucagon producing, producing cells is not an accident of nature. It is designed in our evolution. And the more we understand that parachronology as to what is happening and how do you mess that up and how do you modulate it for our benefit? How do you use it so that you become more fat burning? How do you use it to optimize your fast? Does caffeine help in that process? These are the questions that I want us to ask so that people can take the next step. I think now they understand and say, hey, Paul, we believe you. <laughs> we think that high LDL is not a problem. We, 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 will, we will even take your advice. And when the medical professional gives us an advice, we're going to do our critical thinking and decide for ourselves whether we're going to go on a statin or a PCSK9 inhibitor or no. And, and we'll make that decision. But let's take a step further. What is the culprit? How can we optimize our health? What does a high triglyceride mean sometimes in me, even though I'm following a animal sourced food diet, but by the way, I started out insulin resistant. How do I get that better? So that is the kind of podcast that I would love to have with you so that we are pushing the envelope. We are Let's giving people new information. Let's do it. We'll do a Useful part two. Information. <laughs> so if you could leave people with, maybe we can just give a little teaser here. I think that people love hearing how they can make it better. And in a future podcast, we'll unpack all that. But what would be your prescription? You know, Dr. Nadir Ali, interventional cardiologist, what is your prescription for how to make those things better? How do people live in the best way from your perspective? Awesome. I'm, I'm glad you're giving me the closing uh, statements here. Because if I were to tell a person to optimize their health, the number one thing that I would tell them is that, hey, change your nutrition. Stay away from refined food, processed food, from carbs. Predominantly have an animal-sourced food diet. Practice intermittent fasting. Our body and biology is designed for fasting. If you're not fasting, and then fasting will come naturally to you, Paul, because you are so biologically and metabolically healthy. But for somebody who's metabolically unhealthy, it is important for them to reduce meal frequency so that their metabolic syndrome and their um, uh, they have a significant improvement in the way insulin signaling and glucagon signaling is happening. The second thing is learn that caffeine mobilizes fat from fat tissue. But the mobilization of caffeine, uh, mobilization of fat by caffeine, that fat is recycled. It's, it only increases oxidative, it only increases the oxidation of fat by a small percentage. How would you increase the oxidation and prevent the recycling with caffeine? What can you do for that? 
learn the benefits of exercising in a fasted state, especially if you're obese and insulin resistant. How does that help you? How can you delay your meal after you have exercised and what benefits it has in fat mobilization and fat oxidation or fat burning? These are the places where I want to help people and help them optimize their health. But if you're not going to start out from a standpoint of saying that, hey, I'm going to change my diet. I am going to go from a standard American diet to a predominantly animal-sourced food diet and then add all these layers to it, you're not going to get to the optimal health that you are talking about. Do you, um, do you eat nose to tail? Do you include organs in your diet? Do you eat things like liver and whatnot? I try to. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly good at, but yes, I try to eat nose to tail as much as I can. Uh, just to give you a few examples is that I do have liver. Uh, I do have brain. I do have kidneys in my diet. Uh, there is an Indian delicacy uh, in which they take the tongue of lamb and goats and make a beautiful soup. It's slow cooked and, and, and that tongue is, is very tasty. In addition, they take the hooves ah. of these animals and mix it in that soup. So you get excellent gel- gelatin. I'm a big fan of eggs and egg yolks. I'm a big fan of sashimi because that's where I'm getting my omega-3s from. So um, my on my way back home, I pick up sashimi, and that is my dinner about three times a week. Love it. So I may not be as good as you are in terms <laughs> of nose to tail. You're pretty good. I'm my best. Yeah, and if you need, we'll get you some desiccated supplements from Hardened Soil. So I want to <laughs> let you go. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently, my friend? Last question for everybody on the podcast. I would say the most radical thing that I have done recently is that I have learned to exercise in the fasted state and not eat for five hours after I have exercised. That one aspect has improved my health tremendously. Interesting. So to tell you, to give you an example, I come every morning to work for the last seven months. I get up in the morning, I drink a cup of coffee, I get on my bike. It's a 35-minute ride to my work. It's a pretty intense ride. And I don't eat usually until 2 o'clock. And many times I don't eat until I get back home. And that duration from the time I have stopped exercising to the time I eat is at least five hours. And if people can learn to do that, that will improve and optimize their health. I think that would be a... A, a very accelerated way for people with pre-existing diabetes or metabolic dysfunction to get better quickly, don't you think? I would, I would bet it is. And yeah. I have seen that in my, in my practice. Absolutely. So what's the best place for people to find you? You said you've got the YouTube channel, Nadir Ali. So I don't know if you know, Paul, but I have joined hands with um, IDM and the fasting method. Okay. So I'm a part of Jason Fung and Megan Ramos's uh, site. Okay. And I, they can find me on idm.com or thefastingmethod.com. They can look at a number of my YouTube videos by just putting my name in YouTube, Nadir Ali MD. Uh, that would be a good resource. Eat Mostly Fats and Facebook group is another good way to get a hold of me. So I am probably not as savvy in putting out my services as some of the other people are. 
but I'm slowly getting there. Do you work with clients virtually or can people contact you if they want to work with you? Anything like that or do they have to be in Houston? No, absolutely. I have a very big online presence and I'm hoping that my online work increases to the point that I can start backing off some of the hospital work, some of the stents and some of the angioplasties I do because I think that my real talent and what I'm designed to do is to do the kind of stuff that you are doing, Paul. I think I can help people a lot more by understanding this area more, by bringing it to a grassroots effort in which I put out YouTube videos so that people can understand what I'm talking about. And one-on-one consultations with people because it's impossible for a person who's out on the street to absorb all this information and use it to improve his health. They're gonna need help. And we are on the forefront of creating that help for them. And the more we do things like this, more of our colleagues are going to join us and it's gonna improve the number of resources people have. So yes, they can contact and do a a one-on-one consultation online with me through my office. They can Google and get my numbers. They can go through IDM and get me. So I'm hoping that because you have so much visibility (laughs) that my uh, online consultation improves as well. And I'm here to offer my services. Oh, I think that that would be a gift to so many people. And I hope that if listeners are curious or have cardiac questions and want to work with a board certified cardiologist, they'll reach out to you at the heart and soil website. You guys were developing the animal based medicine referral network. That's going to be up probably at the time this podcast is released or very soon. So you guys can go to heart and soil supplements.com in the top banner, there will be a listing for the animal based medicine referral network. We're trying to get everybody who sort of is appreciative of the nose to tail animal based eating philosophy in one spot so that people can find people like you, Nadir. So thank you so much for coming on. You're a gift, my friend. It's always good to talk to you. We'll have to do many more podcasts in the future and I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Paul. And I'm sorry I had to leave a little early, but the recent hurricane has thrown our schedule off and I hate to leave you, but I hope to be back and you should promise to get me back. We'll get you back, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, you guys, bonus. This podcast is not over yet. Dr. Nadir Ali had to leave, but there are so many more cool things that I really wanted to share with you guys that I'll do a little solo cast on the end here. You guys know that I can't do a podcast that's less than 90 minutes. So here we go with a little more. So if you're on YouTube, you'll see me share this PCSK9 side effect paper a little bit. Again, I found the part that I'd highlighted and it was just this part that says, Evolocumab increased the risk of all-cause mortality in the Fourier trial. The main results article presented mortality censored, that's a big word today in 2020, censored at the medium follow-up of 22.2, the median follow-up of 2.2, excuse me, years. And this was used in previous reviews. Clinicaltrials.gov provided mortality for the full length of follow-up of all patients at 3.4 years. And as I said earlier, at 3.4 years, the results look very, very differently. There's another article that I wanted to share with you guys. I didn't have time to share when I was on with Nadir, and I'll screen share this one on YouTube. Binding and partial inactivation of Staphylococcus aureus alpha toxin by, Huzma, by human 
Plasma, low-density lipoprotein. That's how you know you've been podcasting all day, guys. You start blurring your words. But this is a really cool paper, and we'll link it in the show notes. Again, they're all at Heart and Soil. Basically, this is showing what Nadir and I were talking about, that LDL, human, low-density lipoprotein, is involved in the immune response. It is binding and partially inactivating a staph aureus alpha toxin. This is what Nadir and I were talking about with PCSK9. In the setting of an infection, our body is going to um, upregulate PCSK9, upregulate PCSK9, and that leaves more LDL in the circulation. And what does more LDL in the circulation do? More LDL in the circulation leads to more of this immunologic activity, okay? Super, super interesting. Why are we blocking this? Why do we keep trying to fight against this? It makes no sense. Just like we talked about the genetic condition with PCSK9, in which that uh, that protein is deleted, leading to low serum LDL, leading to all sorts of problems, leading to changes in lipoprotein metabolism, diabetes, increased fatty liver, increased VLDL uptake, right? There is a genetic condition that I've talked about in the past called smith lemley Oppitz syndrome. I'll show you guys this one. It's in my book. This is a fascinating syndrome. This is a syndrome in which one of the enzymes in the formation of cholesterol is broken. It's this 7-dehydrocholesterol reductase enzyme is mutated in smith lemley Oppitz syndrome, which means you can't make cholesterol. Now, you can see the cholesterol synthesis pathway here. I've got it in my book as well. It starts at two acetyl-CoA's. It's a long pathway. The third step is HMG-CoA reductase. This is where statins are inhibitors. And HMG-CoA reductase makes mevalonate. It's called the mevalonate pathway beyond that. And it goes through all these different intermediates, uh, farnesyl pyrophosphate and farnesyl pyrophosphate can go into coenzyme Q10 or ubiquinol, as we said in the podcast. And then downstream from there, you have linosterol, zymosterol, and all these other ones, all the osterols, right? And you have 7-dehydrocholesterol reductase. This is the enzyme that's mutated in smith lemley Oppitz syndrome. You can't make desmosterol, which is a precursor for cholesterol. Now, what do kids with smith lemley Oppitz syndrome get? If you look at Wikipedia or any medical textbook, they're basically the same these days. You'll see it has a broad spectrum of effects ranging from mild intellectual disability and behavioral problems to lethal malformations. And so what we're saying here is a condition which really limits the amount of cholesterol and therefore the amount of LDL that humans can make leads to massive problems in human biology. Now, is this due to the fact that we don't have LDL around? Uh, we can't move cholesterol around to our cell membranes? I think it's possibly due to that. There are some potential other downstream side effects doing, due to having an increase in 7-dehydrocholesterol um, as well, but not having regular cholesterol around to make many of the building blocks of our cells is a major problem. This is what we are mimicking with statins. So in this podcast, we talked about both statins and PCSK9 inhibitors, two drugs that you will more than likely hear about in your life as a patient if you end up with a high cholesterol, um, which many of you will if you are eating an animal-based diet, which is why I like to do these things. So it'll be so interesting for me to continue sharing my data, my coronary artery calcium score as I move forward. I wanna share a couple of other data points that are from my book. These are graphics from my book. The first one is the Framingham study, coronary artery disease risk by LDL. Now. What's interesting about this is if you look at the increasing risk of coronary artery disease on the y-axis and LDL across the x-axis, you can see that in the whole study, uh, LDL goes up and coronary artery disease risk goes up. Well, Paul, I thought you told us this wasn't how it works. Well, this is what I'm talking about. This is what you guys will read about in my book, The Carnivore Code. This is what you should show your 
cardiologist is this further analysis of the Framingham data from a 1977 paper, which I will show here. Here's the paper, and I will show you the graphic in a moment. The paper says high-density lipoprotein as a protective factor against coronary heart disease, the Framingham study. So that's the paper. You can see the reference. Again, it's in the show notes, which are all at Heart and Soil. And here is the graphic, and the graphic looks very different. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see this. If you're not watching on YouTube, I will describe it for you. It's the same graphic that I showed before with LDL across the x-axis and increasing risk of coronary artery disease on the y-axis. Now, what you find is that if we stratify these two variables by HDL, we see that the relationship between LDL and coronary artery disease is completely dependent on HDL. With HDLs of 85, mine is 90, remember, from my labs, having essentially no correlation between LDL and coronary artery disease. But if you have an HDL of 25, there's a significant correlation between your LDL and coronary artery disease. And in fact, if you look at the bottom of this graph, even at an LDL of 100, if your HDL is 25, you have almost an eight times relative risk of coronary artery disease and your LDL is at 100. That's where most cardiologists want to see it. You can just look at the baseline risks here. But you can see there's a real interesting part of this, which is there's another variable. This is what Nadir and I were talking about. There is another variable, and that variable is metabolic function, metabolic health. Metabolic health is reflected by HDL, you guys. If your HDL is low, not always, but a lot of the time in the general population, that is associated with metabolic syndrome. And there are many studies to show this, okay? Let's show you this. One other study. I just love doing this, you guys. I'll just throw up studies here. Mechanisms of HDL lowering in insulin-resistant hypertriglyceridemic states, the combined effect of HDL triglyceride enrichment and elevated hepatic lipase activity. So hypertriglyceridemia and low plasma concentrations of HDL and quantitative, qualitative, excuse me, changes in low-density lipoproteins, which are small, dense LDL, as opposed to um, my large buoyant LDL with a typical size of 24.7 nanometers, comprise the typical dyslipidemia of insulin-resistant states and type 2 diabetes. This is what I'm talking about. That's what that, that graphic shows from the Framingham study. If you are metabolically dysfunctional, if you have insulin resistance, which again, I've talked about in previous podcasts, is the worst term. It's metabolic dysfunction, you guys. It's metabolic dysfunction. If you have metabolic dysfunction, your HDL could be low. There are some people who have genetically low HDL, and there are other metrics we can use to look at metabolic functioning. But if you have a metabolic dysfunction and your HDL is low, those usually go hand in hand, that is a big risk factor. And that is what is causing the problem. LDL is not the arsonist. LDL is the fireman. Just to make sure you guys understood what I said here as well, the other parts of metabolic dyslipidemia are hypertriglyceridemia and qualitative changes in LDL. That's what they're talking about with small LDL. That's why I showed you guys what my LDL size was. It's 24.7 nanometers. That's big. That's 247 angstroms. So you can look at your LDL. If you get an LDL lipoprotein panel, you can look at your LDL number. But what's more interesting or more, you know, I think predictive here is what is your LDL size and what is your oxidized LDL? Dr. Nadir Ali and I didn't have time to really talk about this too much in the podcast, but there's not a great way to check oxidized LDL outside of a lab. There are a lot of surrogate markers, but as I've talked about with Dave Feldman in the past, I fear there are many problems with traditional tests of oxidized LDL. And oxidized LDL tends to track with your LDL number, 
which is not always the best thing. If you listen to previous podcasts I've done on lipoproteins, when I see an oxidized LDL in a client of mine, I just want to do a ratio between their particle number and their oxidized LDL. I think really the holy grail of lipoprotein particle testing will be how high is your oxidized LDL and how high is your oxidized LDL relative to your total LDL particles. I think there's some compelling data that LDL is beneficial for humans and that LDL is protective. These are all the things we've talked about. So a couple more as I wrap up here. I talked a little bit about Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome, clinical effects of cholesterol supplementation in six patients with Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome. And they gave these patients lots of egg yolks. They gave them tons of cholesterol in the egg yolks. They have a cholesterol, uh, total cholesterol that goes from eight to 62 milligrams per deciliter. That's a total cholesterol. Their LDL is extremely low, but they were able to raise it somewhat with tons of egg yolks. Okay. Clinical benefits of therapy were seen in all patients, irrespective of the age of onset of treatment or severity of cholesterol defects. The effects of treatment included growth, more rapid developmental progress, and a lessening of problem behaviors. All right. Super, super interesting that you give these people back cholesterol, their LDL goes up. This defect in seven uh, dehydrocholesterol reductase is bypassed because you're giving them cholesterol and they get way better. So that is really the scientific criteria that you have a condition, you have a genetic condition that includes the impairment in cholesterol synthesis. Kids are behaviorally problematic. They're developmentally delayed. You give them back cholesterol, you get more LDL and they do way better. How can anyone argue that LDL is harmful for humans when it's clearly essential for human life and a huge part of our biology. It's so interesting for me. Now, a few more things I wanted to talk about as well before I wrap up here. We talked about statins a little bit on this podcast, not as much about statins. Statins, of course, inhibit that enzyme, HMG-CoA reductase. I am no fan of statins. Though they do have benefits in secondary prevention trials, there are many trials like this, or this is a case series, mood, personality, and behavioral changes during treatment with statins that show that they cause behavioral changes. Why is this not surprising? In the study I just showed with the kids with Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome, they're having behavioral problems when you limit their LDL cholesterol. Now, you can't get the LDL as low as the Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome kids do, but here's, here's 12 cases in this review. Again, this will be in the show notes. Here's case 11, atorvastatin, 20 milligrams, then simvastatin, 20 milligrams, were followed in two weeks by aggression irritability in his, by a man in his 50s definite causality. Now, these are just case studies, but you can read about all these case studies. There's 11 cases in here of lowering the LDL leading to mood and behavioral problems. This is a big deal, and it mirrors what is happening in Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome. How could LDL possibly be the arsonist when it has so many other beneficial effects in the human body? And as I showed with the Framingham study, we can stratify by metabolic dysfunction markers like HDL. There's a lot more nuance here, guys. It is way more complex and way more interesting than it has been made out to be. The last thing I will show as I wrap up this podcast, this ending solo cast, is some stuff about omega-3s. Dr. Nadir said that he was getting omega-3s. I definitely think humans need omega-3s. We also need omega-6s. Linoleic acid is an essential fatty acid. We just don't need a lot of them. We don't need a lot of omega-6 and we don't need a lot of omega-3 either. If you're getting a little bit of fish occasionally, you're going to be fine on your omega-3s. I'm going to do a whole podcast on blood work. I recently got my lipids checked. 
excuse me, my fatty acid levels, and I have robust levels of EPA, DHA, and DPA, docosapentaenoic acid, and I don't supplement with any omega-3s at all. I really don't eat much fish anymore because it's so high in um, the heavy metals. So, but I have tons of omega-3 because I'm getting omega-3 in grass-fed animal fat. This is my problem with over-supplementation with fish oil, you guys. Determination of lipid oxidation products in vegetable oils and marine omega-3 supplements. Isn't this interesting? The peroxide values were measured and what they found, the contents of hydroperoxides and alkenols, which are oxidative products, in omega-3 supplements are higher than in vegetable oils. After heating vegetable oils, a large increase in alkenol concentrations was observed. This is what I've been talking about. Fish oil supplements are very high in peroxides. They're very oxidized. You don't need fish oil supplements. You don't need to supplement omega-3s if you are eating grass-fed animal fat. It's absolutely fine. In fact, I think it's way better than getting it from marine sources, especially a fish oil pill. I've shown in previous videos, and I'll do a whole video on Instagram in the future, look out for those controversial thoughts video, showing that if you supplement too much with omega-3s, you can see increased lipid peroxides. So you don't want to over-supplement with omega-3s. You don't want, to, you don't want any uh, excess omega-6s. There's plenty of omega-6 in just ruminant animal meat. 1.8% is plenty. You don't really want more than 2 to 3% of your calories to come from linoleic acid. That's my goal for most of you. Increase the stearic acid with suet. We're going to make suet in fire starter with heart and soil. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll probably be out, you guys. But get stearic acid, avoid linoleic acid, and you will thrive. And I can't wait for the next conversation with Dr. Nadir Ali, in which we get into his ideas about insulin and glucagon. I would have loved to have asked him more about linoleic acid. We got into it a lot in this podcast as well. So thank you all for listening to my rambling uh, after, afterward, my rambling, my rambling post-lude, uh, my rambling, you know, uh, basically summary of the whole thing and my additions. So hope this has been helpful, you guys. I appreciate you all listening to the podcast. I hope you'll check us out at Heart and Soil. And as you all know, at the end of every podcast is what, a, what is going on with me. I suppose since I'm finishing up this episode solo, I'll tell you what I've been doing that's radical. And I think the most radical thing that I've done recently was a trip, trip to Montana. Uh, probably when this podcast comes out, my podcast with Steve Ranella on Mediator will be out. It was awesome to be up there. And I did a lot of mountain climbing in Montana. It was good to be back in the mountains. So that's my radical you can subscribe to our newsletter at Hard and Soil if you want to hear what we're doing. That's radical. I love you all. Stay radical. Listen after this podcast as always, and I'll share more. I hope this has been helpful. I love talking about lipids. Re-listen to this if you have questions. Listen to the other podcasts with Dave Feldman times two, Malcolm Kendrick, Nadir Ali, uh, Jack Wolfson. Actually, I forgot. I did another one with Ivor Cummins. So there's probably six to seven podcasts on lipids. If you have questions, if your cardiologist has questions, send them to me. You guys can always email me, Dr. Paul, drpaul at hardandsoilsupplements.com. I'm going to wrap this one up. I love you all. You can listen more for what's going on with me after this podcast. Take care, guys. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to that one with Nadir Ali. Thanks for listening to my little rant at the end. Sometimes when there is a short time with the guest and we don't have time to get to everything, I will, uh, I will take time at the end to talk about some studies that I did not have time to cover. In the future, you will hear debates, friendly debates with me and Danielle Bellardo, who is a plant-based vegan cardiologist. Been shouting me out, appeals to authority, all kinds of silliness online. All right, we'll have her on the podcast. I'm a debater. It's gonna be a throwdown. Um, 
And also I'm going to have a podcast with Spencer Nadolsky, another family doc who likes to troll online. Um, we'll give him his due and I'll debate him on the podcast about lipids as well. We'll have lots of lipid conversations in the future. And yeah, I'm not going to shy down. I'm not going to shy down. I'm not going to shy away from debating anybody. I have defended these issues for two years. I wrote a book and that's what we're about. We're about moving things forward and how people understand that it's not about being right. It's about knowing uh, that we're all looking for the truth. And I will talk to any other truth seekers on the podcast and you guys can decide what works best for you. But I think that what you will see is that, man, there are so many holes in the lipid hypothesis. We have been told the wrong information the wrong information for 70 years and it has killed millions of people. We need to question this in a big way, in a big way and that's what I'm happy to do. It feels meaningful to me and I'm grateful to get to do it. Thanks for supporting my sponsors. Thanks for checking us out, heartandsoil.co. We've got Blood Builder, Histamine and Immune in stock, Firestarter in stock. The other ones will be back in stock real soon, guys. You can put yourself on a list for uh, Notify Me When Available. Believe me, we are working hard. We are popular. People love our stuff because it's the best stuff I can find anywhere on the planet right now. We're trying to get a U.S. supply chain. Check us out, hardandsoil.co. Sign up for the newsletter if you want to hear fun stuff that I think about every week, and that would be great. Check out whiteoakpastures.com, belcampo.com, nutrisense.com, nutrisense.io, excuse me, forceofnature.com. Love you all. See you next week. You are part of the remembering. Stay radical.